it's clear that racism has an impact on black and brown bodies. And what's really sad is that we don't really understand the enormity of the impact quite yet as I understand it. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Black And, a candid conversation about racism, white people, and ways to move forward. I'm Jonathan. And I'm April. And we're brother and sister looking to discuss how race informs important issues, current events, and what white people looking to make a difference can do. On today's episode, we're really excited to share our interview with Dr. Nicole Green, the executive director of UCLA's Counseling and Psychological Services. But before that, Jonathan, what's on your mind? I think in keeping with our conversation with Dr. Green, since we're having her on, I'd like to talk about mental health. Um, And I think I really want to talk about it in the workplace, because I think that is such an important issue that everyone has dealt with and is dealing with now, or at least uh, most people are. And, and, you know, why it's so hard for us to sort of advocate for our own mental health in the workplace. I don't know about you. Like, do you, April, do you advocate for yourself? Like you tell your boss, like, I need to take a mental health day. Yes, I would say I do advocate for myself in the workplace, but I could definitely do a better job. And I would hazard a guess that that is the experience of a lot of Black people where, sure, we speak out sometimes, but we could do better in advocating for ourselves in the workplace. I don't know about you, but I sometimes feel and have had to tell myself that it's not me being weak. It's me being real. And I work in HR, so I am all the time having conversations about with people about their mental health. Um, and I work in a mostly white space, so it's mostly white people. So why why don't I do the same? Yeah, I mean, I so to me, I think it's complicated because such a big part of Black people's mental health in the workplace is experiencing racism in the workplace as well, you know? So like... Mm-hmm. It, it's hard to ask for me, it's hard to ask if I work at a place. So my first law firm is a good example of this. I worked at a big law firm in Philadelphia and it was just like I was the only black person there. Literally, I was the only black lawyer in the whole firm of like 200 people. And I, it just. You can guess what types of experiences you have You being judged more harshly, your work being routinely criticized more, more strictly. Um, I got mistaken by people all the time for like the janitorial staff. Like um, it just so like existing in that world just because I need to do it to make money. But then also being like this is like low key, like traumatizing me over and over again every day. And so I'm supposed to say to my boss, oh, yeah, uh, actually, hi, there's a lot of racism around me. So I need to like go home and spend the day, you know? Right, right. And, you know, you you say I'm supposed to go to my boss who is white. Right, um, of course. You know? right. And right. so that I think that's one of the hardest things, too. I I've been fortunate enough just throughout my work history, my work life. I've had really great bosses and supervisors. Um, and that's true today, too. But it's still awkward. I usually, you know, on the best of days and um, just very challenging to approach them and say, hey, you probably have no idea, no offense, um, but today's been really rough. I'm going to clock out now, um, like TTYL, maybe tomorrow, you know, (laughs) like it's just 
<laughs> it's just an awkward conversation to have. Um, yeah. And it's, I don't know. Yeah. It makes me feel like I'm not pulling my weight when yeah, in reality I'm pulling, you know, my own weight and that of, and the additional weight that racism puts on my shoulders every day. Right. Yeah. I think that the most recent example of what you're talking about in terms of like calling, calling in black, as I say, um, is, during a when Brianna Taylor, the decision to not charge those officers came down a few weeks ago, I just was st- staring at my TV, working from home, you know, watching news, watching this happen. And I just, you know, and it's even more difficult because it's in the context of the Zoom environment and email environment. So I had to like yeah. email my boss to ask to not do any more work for the rest of the day. Right. And so then you have to like actually articulate it in words and not you can't just like sigh heavily in their office and they have them say like you don't look so great you know like it you right. like ask how to do it and so I just said like I can't concentrate today I feel hurt I feel wounded I feel like a part of me is dying and is not going to ever and no one's ever going to care about it you know, you don't want me working today. That is not, this is any advice I might give to someone in my job, any, you know, I, I mediate conflicts in my job like that. You just don't want me doing that today, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. We have very and, similar experiences. And, just, and of, of course, you know, I work in, you know, uh, in Los Angeles, very, you know, everyone is very sort of liberal and sort of understanding, especially at universities. Um, and, and I work at UCLA. And so it, you know, it, of course it was, it wasn't an email that like I had, I was nervous about writing, but it's like, damn, I actually have to like articulate how to do, and my boss is a black woman, mind you. Um, so that's amazing. Oh my God. Right. It's like not a, you know, of course she would say like, she just wrote back to me, like, please take care of yourself. Let me know whenever you, you know, are feeling better and like take as much time as you need. Of course is the right answer, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. and I knew she was going to say that, but it's like one of those things where I can't imagine having said that when I was working at that same big law firm, when, Terrence Crutcher was killed or the other huge it was you know I was that that summer of 2016 when so many black people were being killed by police so publicly I don't know if the numbers were actually higher during that summer but just so the number of public uh, examples was so great I can't imagine calling out of work at my sort of white shoe law firm conservative law firm like that just wouldn't have been an option you know yeah yeah Um, it's weird so you know we're, I think we're both very fortunate in that we can do that. I sent a very similarly worded email to my to my uh, bosses when the Breonna Taylor case was announced and was met with empathy and generosity and right. flexibility and anything, everything I could ask for, could have asked for in their responses. But what do Black folks who don't, are in, either have shitty bosses or they're in jobs that they're not respected or they're not appreciated uh, and they don't feel they're able to express themselves right it's just that's just the worst it's just the worst yeah no (laughs) i mean you have to be you have to and i'm sure we'll get into this a little bit uh when we talk to dr green later on but it you so clearly exemplify that a feeling of a double consciousness when you have to turn yourself off and turn on your work mode yep. and type those friendly emails and not just tell everyone to fuck off because that's how right. you're feeling. But it's just, yeah, it's just such a, it's just such a bad feeling when you aren't free to feel 
your real right. feelings and you have to you have to you know soldier on as if you're not breaking up inside yeah i mean i think that it, i totally agree and it is one of those things where it's like i i going to a boss who is not who doesn't know what like white privilege is for example quote unquote right white privilege i always have to say because i don't that's a euphemism to me for just racism um they don't know what we're talking about exists right like so you go to your boss saying this thing is happening is making me hurt this thing that you are doing really not it let's just say we won't say it to our boss's face but if people in the law firm people in the at the university people at in the warehouse people at the wherever you work i'm experiencing this day-to-day you know trauma as a as a a black person working in a largely white environment, um, they don't know how to, they literally can't empathize with that because it's like, how, what, what do you mean white environment? Like they don't, that won't make, that's a nonsense term to them, you know, because of white supremacy, because white supremacy, white is viewed as the default, you know, it's just, yeah, it's just hard to ask for. So something our, uh, dad used to say back, you know, Um, And I always I like to tell you these things that dad said because of you were so young when he passed away, you were four and a lot of these memories you you just don't have. And so I like to bring them up when they're relevant, because at a time like this, he would say white people are lucky that black people don't freak out on them when they see them. Every every white person we see because of the things that white people as a whole do to us Um, and. It is that's kind of I have that in my mind as I'm talking about mental health, black mental health in the workspace. It's like y'all are really something thinking that, you know, thinking you think we're just normal right now and nothing's bothering us. But we're suppressing a lot of hurt and harm and rage. And there's that James Baldwin quote uh, to be a Negro and to be relatively conscious in this country is to be in a state of rage almost all the time. And the only, uh, the only thing you have to do next, I'm paraphrasing, is to, to make sure that it doesn't control you. And that's exactly how I feel about mental health, because it's like, I, y'all are lucky I'm not screaming when I'm just walking down the street listening to the news because of my people being killed on national TV for doing nothing, you know? Right. And it's so funny that that, in the email to my bosses, I shared that quote. Um, and that just goes to show how relevant it is. It's for, so relevant for yeah. black people, where it's it is this deep seated rage that, uh, you know, some days it it comes out, um, and it's unfortunate if it ever comes out at work because it's low key embarrassing, um, right. but very freeing often. Um, but it, you know, I'm so good at smiling and typing a, a friendly email and right. you know approaching an employee and having just a nice you know collegial conversation but there have been times when that's happening and in my mind it's like i may explode i may may burst at some point i really hope it doesn't happen during this conversation while you know stanley is is in front of me but it might so (laughs) we'll see um i mean april i think back the reason i wanted to talk about this like i i think back to when i was uh when i was in Boston when I was working there I remember do you remember me I told you guys about the time I I was pulled over I might not have told you in Jubilee because I don't want to scare you but I told mom that I was pulled over by a cop in my own neighborhood and um 
it was a, I was, you know, scared to reach for anything. He was very sort of, um, he wasn't mean, but he was just, he was sort of on edge. And like, I just couldn't, I didn't want to reach for my phone. I was thinking about, I wanted to, to record because that's the smart thing to do. But also like the smart thing to do is keep both your hands on your steering wheel um, and not reach for the black shiny object that's in your console, right? My iPhone. Um, and I got home from this experience totally, it was totally fine. I, of course, wasn't cited for anything as I never am. Um and then I just, I called mom and I broke down into tears, just crying and sort of almost hyperventilating because I was, I had been so scared that I was going to die. I was just scared that he, I think someone, I, it's sad that I can't remember who among all of the black people that have been murdered by police in that year it was, <laughs> but that had just happened. Um, and I was just so terrified and I just had that breakdown what if I had been going to work when that happened what if I had been on my way to the office at you know in the general counsel's office all my colleagues are, are I was the only black person in the office it was white lawyers um which is fine I guess I mean they're they're great people um but getting pulling up you know to this to my employer my job the way that I make money to live and bawling, hyperventilating, crying because I just got pulled over by a cop, um, I would be looked at as ridiculous, you know, or at least that's my fear that they won't understand why I'm why is this grown ass man crying like a child after being pulled over by a cop and not ticketed, not hurt, not anything, you know? Yeah. Um, And I think it so I'm I I do remember that event and I'm pretty sure it was Philando Castile who was yeah. murdered um, yeah. there at, near that time, because I remember yeah. thinking about him um, when you told us about this experience, which is just weird. Um, but I also want to quick uh, just make a quick point where you sort of casually said that you weren't cited because you never are to our white listeners. That's because he's never breaking the law when he's pulled yeah, So true. So true. It's not because he just meets a lot of nice cops. It's because there's never something to cite him for. He's not being pulled over for a particular reason. <laughs> right. That, no, that, and that's you're so that's so I you're so right to call that out because I just sort I did casually just of course I've, I've never I can't remember the last ticket I've ever gotten because I don't I'm a really safe driver um, and I take pride in that. And also because, you know, because I care about the people around me, but also cops are looking for every reason to pull you out to pull black people over so i drive a very shiny black suv that i worked very hard to pay for and it you know that they don't need another reason to pull me over all these times i've been pulled over it's been for for nothing that time in boston it was because uh my i think he said my windows were tinted too dark or something like that and it's like i I bought this from the dealership like this is how this came to me i did not tint this these windows you know like so bullshit reasons that aren't actually real they're in the law we call them pretext pretextual reasons to get you to stop to look into your car to smell your breath to look at your to shine their flashlight in your eyes to see if they can you know, if it passes the smell test that they can say, yeah, his eyes were glossy or yes, I smell weed or yes, I saw, uh, you know, a little box of something, pills or whatever, whatever the fuck. It doesn't matter. Right. Like it's just anything. Right. They need anything. 
Um, and my car is immaculate inside. There's not one thing in my car that's loose. You know, like I literally don't have things on the seats, don't have things on the floor. Sometimes the dog's in the back. And that's because I don't want anything to be, I don't want a cop to be able to say they can, they need to me to get out of my car to search that little thing that's in my bag. Anyway, tangent, but yes, great. Good to call that out. But yeah, this is, I get pulled over often. I've been pulled over twice in Los Angeles already, and I've lived there for a year. How many times have you all, listeners, been pulled over in the past year, you know? Right. And right. and it's all within one mile of my home, too. It's places I am often. So um, we could do a whole other sort of what's on your mind segment about driving while black. Whew. We should, yeah. But all that is to say, all put all of this, what we're talking about, behind in my mind and in my heart and in my sort of spirit when I get pulled over and I'm just broken by this police officer who completely reminds me that he could just kill me right now and wouldn't get in trouble and then go to work and try to operate like a person, like an employee, you know, employers and colleagues don't know that that's happening to us. And if they do know, they don't appreciate it because they can't appreciate it. I mean that in the the true sense of the word, like they can't know what it is. Um, And so of course I'm going to be, reticent when it comes to asking about mental health advice or mental health help you know in the office and in the workplace because it's like you don't you have no idea you think i'm a you think i'm uh, in your mind a crazy person right like <laughs> right. I'm, i've lost touch with reality because i i'm paranoid and i think something is happening that isn't because you can't see it you know right um so i'm i'm excited to talk to dr green about mental health because i you know she's a black woman she runs um the counseling and psychological services entire huge department at ucla which is huge um and she so she knows her stuff and i we're specifically going to talk to her about our issues and and what folks can do so i'm i'm excited for it but it's definitely a topic that we cannot talk about enough yeah Very true. Well, with that being said, up next, we will share our interview with Dr. Nicole Green. Dr. Nicole Green, welcome to Black And. We're so happy to have you. Thank you. Thank you for having me. We are so interested in the work that all mental health professionals do, particularly within the context of where we see ourselves now with everything going on in our uh, society. And so uh, we thought you would be the one of the best people to talk to specifically about Black mental health issues um, and the, the issues faced by the Black community in the context of your practice uh, at UCLA as the head of counseling and psychological services at UCLA. So uh, we are really happy to have you. And I guess we should just start off by getting into some of the language that folks use. So we often hear people talk about racism being traumatic um, and traumatic, especially to, to Black people. And we hear about this even in instances where there isn't physical violence. Um, so could you uh, could you sort of explain to our, our listeners what 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 is me- meant by the word trauma and traumatic in that in that instance with experiencing racism as a black person? Yeah, absolutely, and it's so great that you're really helping to clarify the terms. You know, racism. I'll start with racism. In my mind, racism ex- is experienced on a lot of levels. So there's the individual racism that happens between two people, microaggressions, or some 
outward expression of some bias that happens, invalidations that happen, or a neglectful thing that happens between two people. Then you might think about the community aspects of racism or the cultural aspects of racism where biases that we have in the world around racist jokes or racist slurs then give people permission to have discriminatory behaviors and actions at schools, bullying, trajectories for who gets to be in what classroom or who gets to be involved in what activity that then give license or permission for people to do more aggressive um, things to folks at a cultural level, exclude people from things, um, feel that they shouldn't be part of. So in the black community, biases about us being ignorant, for instance, then allow us to have discriminatory practices around how we assess intelligence and what scores really allow you to get into college, which then give rise to when you're in the institution about how welcome you're able to feel at that institution, all the way up to practices around and policies around graduation and dismissals and retention. And you can see this all through K through 12. This happens at a lot of, in a lot of different institutions, healthcare, policing, but that racism at a cultural level, really, um, there are layers that then kind of give way to the next layer all the way up to murder. Um, so you think about policing, for instance, um, the racial biases in policing of black folks are more dangerous than white folks. That bias then leads to them policing in certain neighborhoods over other neighborhoods, which then gives rise to uh, policies and practices that say black folks should have more severe punishment for their crimes and, for instance, white folks that lead then into it being more permissible to assault black folks all the way up to murder. So that happens on a cultural level and then at an institutional or infrastructural level, it's how all of these institutions fit together and then lock us down into a, into a really um, pretty systemic and intact um, oppressive system. Hmm. Right. So that's for me what racism is. It's at an individual level. It's at a community level. And then it's at this infrastructural level where then all the institutions work together to oppress a, a group of people. For me, what's harmful, you know, we talk about this term harmful. Term harmful is less is more of a broad term. It can be harmful economically. It can be harmful um, to your freedom. It can be harmful to your day to day ability to function and do your job. There are lots of ways that racism harms people. When I think about the traumatic aspects of racism, and I use trauma as a clinician from a clinical lens, what does trauma really mean? Trauma means you experience something that's so pervasive that it affects your mood, your functioning, and your behaviors. So mm -hmm. trauma, trauma happens at a, in a very short-term way, like let's say, uh, you get hit by a car. There's an immediate trauma reaction, shock, numbness, overwhelm, immediate safety and threats to survive, right? And then over a long period of time, when you can't let go of the traumatic experience, it becomes traumatizing and it stays with you. So now every time I see a car, I'm frozen. I don't want to drive. I don't want to be outside. That means that you've been traumatized by this experience. So for Black folks, how is racism harmful to Black folks? Those individual day-to-day -day racism, um, the microaggressions that happen, the invalidations that happen, the day-to-day -day I have to look at TV and see all the biases in the news. Mm. I have to look at all the biases in the political landscape that's happening right now. And then I have to go to work and I have to hear racist jokes. Over time, 
that sort of wears on you and it becomes traumatic. Now, not only on top of, I can see that, you know, uh, black folks in general, because we're a very connected community, we don't make as much money. We're, I studied, we're um, excluded out of um, really complicated and um, impactful health uh, situations. Hmm. So the trauma really becomes, even beyond physical violence, by the time I've been sort of emotionally abused day to day, neglected in the system, I can see and experience the intergenerational political abuse, economic abuse, educational abuse that happens. Then I just live constantly unaware of when am I safe? Where am I safe? One of the most common things about trauma, trauma happens that that really says, really ask the question, am I safe in my environment? And when you've had something like a car accident happen to you, which can be traumatic, your brain is trying to accommodate, is it safe to be in a car or is it not? And once the traumatic ex experience resolves, usually trauma resolves for things yeah. like a car accident. But when it never resolves, you're just always on edge forever and ever. And this is where you see the long-term PTSD. The long, When I say PTSD, I mean post-traumatic stress. This is where you see the long-term hypervigilance. I'm always on edge. Or the long-term feeling of fatigue and exhaustion of like, I can't get out from under this. So racism is not a short thing like a car accident. Racism is 400 years old. We've never been able to get out from under it or resolve it so that our symptoms are just persisting forever and ever. That's what I mean when I talk about racism. That's so helpful. And I appreciate you laying that out and parsing out um the the way you understand the way we should understand this and the car the car accident example is so um so poignant because it is you know we have those sort of knee-jerk sort of semi-violent racist encounters regularly as well like every black person has been called the n-word probably right like mm -hmm. that is a that is a it's not physical in terms of touching your body but it's but been an it emotional is, abuse exactly you know? it's in person and emotional abuse and so the notion that you know um, it is, it, it is, it's truly, uh, gives me more appreciation for us, for me, for black people, um, because we still, with all the things you've described, all the societal racism, all the, the, the per interpersonal, you know, overt, like, you know, N-word racism, or even violence and murder that we're seeing that is obviously racist, um, we still carry on with our lives and we still not only carry on with our lives, but excel and contribute to society in a way that, um, you know, our absence would be so notable if we were, if, you know, if black folks were never to have continued to exist in this, in this country after being brought here. So, um, that I just so appreciate that. Um, and I, I, you know, I don't have a follow-up question, but I, I just told April uh, on, on our sort of side conversation that I, I just wanted to thank you for saying that. So much appreciated. I think April has um, sort of a, a, a COVID-related question. So don't let me, don't let me ramble too much. Okay. <laughs> I do. Yeah. So, um, well, actually, but before we talk about COVID, you laid out so clearly the effects um, on mental health that racism have. I wonder if you could also touch on the physical effects that uh, racism, you know, has and will have over time on Black people. I mean, personally, I've, I, I feel at least that I've experienced um, sometimes physical reactions to uh, racist 
experiences or, uh, you know, news or, um, or sightings or things like that. But I wonder if you could sort of explain uh, to our listeners how trauma um, that Black people experience affects our physical health as well. Yeah, that's a great, great question. Um, well, we know pretty clearly in the literature that stress impacts your physical health it, for everyone, white folks, black folks, brown folks, like stress is known to be a major contributor to, you know, we're not even sure how many physical ailments and diseases stress is related to. And I would say that trauma, which is a more extreme version of stress, also is related to poor health outcomes. And so racism impacts our physical health because, you know, if you think about um, stress being this, um, some threat to you that then you have to go into sort of fight, flight, or freeze, a stress response where you're you're either trying you're trying to um, defend yourself from a situation by fleeing, freezing, or fighting, right? And that's a very basic. Your body's meant to respond to stress, um, temporary stress, how to get out of the situation, right? And stress when you stay in that fight, flight, or freeze long term, meaning that stress or that threat doesn't resolve, it impacts your body. Because your body produces certain hormones like cortisol that are supposed to not stay in your body. Cortisol is meant to help you store fat because if you have to stay in a certain situation for a short amount of time, you need energy. Hmm. And we see cortisol is linked to diabetes. And in black folks, we see high rates of diabetes. Part of this is probably our hormone response to stress. We stay, we stay stressed out. So then our body can't come out of that fight, flight, or freeze and then metabolize the way it's supposed to. That's um, yeah, like we're seeing, you know, first of all, first and foremost, one of the things I should say is that racism, one of the biggest parts of neglect is really the, the neglect of the study of black people for both from a health perspective and a mental health perspective. But what I will say is, um, you know, back in, I think it was like the late nineties, David Satcher was one of the first, he was the surgeon general under Clinton really was the one of the first to talk about health disparities, that there are health disparities for black and brown and underserved folks compared to white folks. We have poor outcomes on so many things, from mm -hmm. cancer to diabetes to heart disease. Part of it is our access to healthcare. Part of it has to do with the environmental, you know, they, we're from long histories of being locked and secluded into certain parts of different cities and communities that are often more neglected than other parts of the city. Let's take mm -hmm. the school systems. If you look at something in LA, like one school, like a Dorsey compared to let's say like a Beverly Hills High, you're gonna see very big differences in um, the amount of resources in those schools. And what I guess I mean to say by this is that stress impacts our bodies, but also the structural racism also impacts our physical health. So we get hit by racism two times in terms of our physical health. The stress that it, you know, the whole and the hold that it has on us from a, an emotional standpoint that then translates into our bodies. But then on top of it, all these other ways in which we're neglected in the healthcare system and in the environmental system and the political system that ultimately has negative consequences on our health. So to say that, you know, it's clear that racism has an impact on black and brown bodies, black folks in particular. And what's really sad is that very few researchers really 
research it or we don't really understand the enormity of the impact quite yet as I understand it. A sort of depressing double whammy. Yeah. Yeah. So it's very clear that racism, you know, impacts black folks' mental health. Um, How has COVID-19 and the pandemic sort of compounded that already very serious impact, particularly for black folks? Yeah, I mean, it's what I just named. I think it's the, we're, you know, from what I'm hearing in the data, you know, and I'm not an expert in it, you know, Black folks are obviously dying of COVID more, but why? I think there's a lot of reasons. Those structural reasons of we're more likely to be in um, economic or um, in employment positions where we have to go in, essential workers, that kind of thing, in smaller quarters and because of the density of where Black folks tend to live, we're at more risk. Um, And then because we're losing people, then our depression, anxiety is higher. And then on top of it, it's highlighted all of this racism in a way that's put a shine of light on the health disparities that already existed and the lack of access to health care that'll help us. And just that our bodies, we were already so, I would just say, in threat or struggling. And then, you know, we add this virus that's probably more difficult for us to fight off because they're saying set, um, underlying conditions are what's really fueling the death rates. Now, this is from what I understand. So, you know, what's happening is that we were already, our, our health is more compromised. I mean, the health disparities data is really clear. Our mental health is more compromised, although they don't study racism and discrimination, threat and stress, probably as much as we all could uh, benefit from. So we already had all this mental health stress. We already had this physical health stress. And then on top of it, you put a deadly disease where we don't have as much access to resources and care and we're forced to go to work more, of course we're more ill. Of course we're more sick. Of course we're dying more. Like we're just more vulnerable in general. So to add something else to that, um, you know, we are, April and I were talking recently about the sort of timing of these, of our podcast episodes and the fact that we need to pay closer attention to where um, in the sort of where in time our episodes are going to be published. And so we were doing the, looking at the calendar and this, this episode, our listeners will hear, will hear this episode, um, I think five days before the election. Um, and so that is another, I can imagine, uh, stressor, no matter how the election turns out ahead of the election, but then also, you know, specifically, and let's just not beat around the bush, you know, if Trump is reelected, um, that is another another sort of overt stressor to, to black and brown people um, that I can imagine happening. So could you talk about a little bit um, the sort of um, what you've seen over the last sort of four years in, in the especially black, black and brown communities with everything going on um, with the president? I'm not asking you to sort of dip into the political here, um, but then also sort of with an eye toward this new election that we're about to have, uh, you know, days after folks will be listening to this. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I'll be candid. There's nothing reason not to like, I'm really concerned about us getting Trump again. Um, I think every 
black most 99.9% of black folks can see this for what it is right that his entanglement with white supremacy and racism is super clear and at least at the very least his neglect of black folks or the lack of consideration for diversity at all um we can see it in federal folks not having to do diversity trainings anymore we can see it over and over and over and over and over again um i mean in truth what scares me and upsets me uh, is that when 2016 happened and he was elected, we had to do so many healing spaces around so much that was we knew was going to get rolled back and it's all come to fruition. Yeah. We're going to have a president who doesn't have to seek re-election for a second right. term. What else could he do? And um, the rollbacks are often at the expense of black folks, you know, yeah. or at least the more compromised folks. And um, so I think, you know, what what you know what, what can i say about this is that i mean in truth where black folks have some agency is to vote you know that's that, that's what i can say and to be very clear that while any one individual black person may not have the same impact trump may not or their policies may not have the same impact overall we can say that our black community cannot, you know, would struggle to survive. And there would be lots of rollbacks because we can see it in our health already. While right. one individual black folk may not get sick, our people are sick and dying and struggling. Right. That's indisputable. And we have a president who seems to be unconcerned about this at all. And so what I guess I would say is that, um, also, we can't hinge our whole destiny on a presidency, mm. that there is individual agency. We have, as was spoken to very eloquently by Jonathan earlier, Black folks, we persist, we're resilient, we have a lot of joy, we have a lot of, um, we're, there's lots of grassroots stuff we can do. It's not just the presidency. We can get involved. We've always taken care of each other. And we need to double down on that strategy, educate each other, take care of each other, um, and really be in a position to put masks on in our communities to do the things we can do. Because while this is disturbing, I also know we've lived through many, many other presidencies that were hmm. bound for our harm. And the only thing we've really used is each other to get through. I'd like to switch gears a little bit. Uh, I'd like to set set the record straight, I guess, if you wouldn't mind for our listeners. There is, I think, a lot of unknown sort of around how mental health is viewed in the Black community specifically. I think you hear a lot of, um, yeah, a lot of sort of what's true, what's not, uh, you know, no Black people believe in mental health. Of course, that's not true. Or, you know, every Black person, you know, should visit their therapist every day. That may be a little more true, but <laughs> I was it, say. <laughs> can you sort of give our listeners an idea of how, generally speaking, mental health is viewed in the Black community? What sort of have you come across in your experience? Um, uh, it, it, you know, I've heard and have experienced myself that that Black people aren't encouraged to explore their own, you know, struggles and issues with mental health. But do you find that actually true in in practice? And if yes, why might that be? Yeah, I think it's a pretty complicated answer. And I don't really know the data or haven't done a lot. Of, I'm not a researcher. I'm more of a practitioner. But I'll say that 
you know, we have struggled to really, uh, it's been a really not to our benefit to demonstrate weakness, nor have we been really given access to mm. anything being other than our like uh, inherent um, uh, deficiencies that we've ever characterized anything that's vulnerable about Black folks. So of course we've been very defended against thinking anything's wrong with us because white folks will have traditionally used that against us. So I can understand it. I think generationally it's changing. To ask a baby boomer about mental health um, is to get those notions that, you know, it's for crazy people. Ask a millennial, mm-hmm. many have had a therapist in their in their adult life. Ask a Gen Zer, they grew up with coaches and therapists and, and mentors and um, podcasts and it all. <laughs> So um, a Gen Z's mental health fluency is much higher than, let's say, a baby boomer and even Gen X are like me. What I'll say is that we struggle with being able, I think, as a whole community to acknowledge vulnerability and to recognize, in my mind, what what that's caused is that you got to be very, very sick before someone's willing to say you need to go to a therapist as opposed to like earlier signs of trauma or talking about trauma or talking about um, what's gone on in families. And it's not really, you know, we as a community, we've done a lot to survive and cope and it's really taken a toll on us. You know, I would say, you know, black men and black different black women have have had different struggles in that way. Mm, And we've just really, really struggled to work with each other, to be a community, yet we thrive, you know, in a lot of ways. So what I'll say is I do think that mental health um, stigma is reducing as generations go on, but I still feel like we we still are a people that will go until the end before we realize this isn't working for me. And I wish we had much better sense of when it's okay to set boundaries, when it's okay to choose me over the struggle or other people in my community who are ailing. When I see clinic, when I see clients and I'm working with mostly 18 to 30 year old black folks, mostly women, you know, they're like, I got to do more for this person. It's very hard for them to set boundaries, very hard to, um, to feel like I'm entitled to be here and spend this time on me. So we have a lot of cultural narratives that we give to each other that really focus on, the collective as opposed to how do I take care of me? So I don't know that we, I think we're doing a better job in recognizing illness. I don't know that we're doing such a great job defining wellness, defining, defining mm-hmm. resilience, defining um, what it, what it's, what it's like to have healthy boundaries and healthy, healthy, um, healthy coping. I just know that we're better at saying you are ill and you need help as opposed to just pushing it away. Man, okay, so Dr. Green, I feel like I am uh, talking to my therapist right now, which is <laughs> great. <laughs> um, I uh, I miss her a lot. We have not had an appointment in a while, so I'm learning so much. Um, so, and I'm going to ask you some questions now for some advice now that I that is uh, you know selfishly applicable to me as a black man, but I know that our listeners would benefit from it as well. So, you know, particularly since we're locked down in COVID, in a, in a COVID uh, sort of stay-at-home uh, society and headed into what is likely to be a pretty, a, a difficult fall and winter outside of, I don't know if you know this, outside of Los Angeles, we have these things um, 
seasons. Like there's a fall, oh, yeah, and a spring, heard. and like a, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so. But so flu season's coming up, and so things are gonna get things are gonna get worse, I think. And so, what are some sort of daily practices that that Black folks can do to combat the negative effects of racism on our mental health? Um, and I know that there's no, you know, fix all or cure all, but just some healthy sort of day to day practices. And it doesn't even need to necessarily be for Black people, but with an eye toward Black folks, because as you've laid out so eloquently. The, you know, the trauma is just compounding. Every question we ask you is about another uh, another type of trauma laid on top of what we've already talked about. So I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, um, that's always a challenging question. Self-care in the Black community. Yeah. Um, it's hard to just even focus on the day-to-day and stay alive. Um, right. One thing I'll say is get educated about mental health and give language to it. Because I think what happens a lot of times um, for young people in particular is this notion of like, I can't do it. Something must be wrong with me or I'm not good enough. Let me go harder. As opposed to giving yourself the permission to ask, why can't I do it? If I if it's not my ability, then what is it? It might be my exhaustion. It might be that I can't settle down. I'm always on edge. It might be that I feel compelled to be in the struggle by being on social media all the time even though I need to turn away. So I think the first part of self-care is assessing what's wrong and what do I need? And as opposed to blaming yourself, looking for that, you know, I always say in a lot of my trainings, I say it's feedback, not failure. The fact that you can't go anymore, the fact that you can't do this thing, as opposed to looking at it as failure, could you look at it as what's the feedback here? Hmm. Where am I exhausted? What am I avoiding? What feels hard? What am I remembering that I don't want to remember? What am I ruminating on? What can't I forgive? And start to just journal about it and give yourself some space around it. Um, can I, so, can, I, yeah, can I stop you just for one second, just to make the point that, you know, you immediately called what I asked you about self-care. You termed it that. Um, and I think a lot of people don't know what self-care is. And a lot of people think that going to buy yourself a, you know, a slushy, mm-hmm with your lunch is self-care and they'll tweet a picture of that, like hashtag self-care on my Tuesday, Mm -hmm. you know, but it's, you're saying that self-care is caring for one's mental health or could you just actually just define self self care for For me, for me. And yeah, you're right. There's a million ways people interpret self-care, but my thinking about self-care is you know, maybe a good way to say it is, you know, we've learned a lot since we were little how to take care of physical health, brush your teeth every day, shower every day, sleep a certain amount. We get a lot of information about, it's not just go to the doctor, which is the equivalent of go to the therapist. You don't just take care of yourself on the day you're going to the doctor. You take care of yourself every day, right? You eat a certain amount, you sleep, or you know, when you're not doing it, you know that you're, you're not taking care of your physical health. The thing is, we don't get any education on what that means around your mental health, right? And mental health has to do with your basic needs, eating, sleeping, um, showering, getting yourself groomed every day. So that starts with the basics. But what are those things beyond the basics that you should be doing that we need to take care of ourselves from an emotional standpoint? And it does mean like every day, how do I take care of my mental health? How do I pay attention to my love, my belonging, my community? How do I take care of my self-esteem? 
how do I make make to take care of making sure I feel like I have purpose and meaning and life is important to me and I'm important to life. So to me, it's the building blocks like akin to what we would do in our physical health around our emotional health. What do I do every day to take care of myself emotionally? We have to start with our physical self because our brain and our bodies are nowhere near disconnected. Our brain is an organ and a muscle like any other. It needs to be exercised. It needs to be taken care of. It needs to be given rest like you would any other thing, right? And so our basic needs are important. And then on top of our basic needs, how do I feel like I can make my, I can sort of plan my day in a way where I get and give love, or at least community? How can I get and give love to myself through self-esteem? How can I journal? How can I engage in therapy? How can I listen to a podcast that helps me better understand myself and have insight? How can I be thinking about my life goals that I tap into every day so that I feel resilient? And that to me is what self-care is. It's this no, it's not a slushy. As a matter of fact, that's not self-care. It's how do I nourish my body? How do I nourish my mind, nourish my relationships? How am I nourishing to me? That to me is self-care. It sounded, Dr. Green, when you're you're listing these things that that folks can do, you uh you basically hinted that this, of course, doesn't come naturally. These would be things that you have to actually practice and work on and be deliberate about, you know, hoping that, well, hope I feel better today or, you know, hope this problem sort of works itself out in my head on its own. That's just not that's not going to happen. No, it takes a daily intention to, you know, um, what are the some things in the daily intention. What I do every night at the end of the day, like they say, you should wake up in the morning and maybe do gratitude. There's lots of things you could do. Do some gratitude in the work in the morning. There's gratitude sheets and workbooks and things that you can work through. Um, every, I'll tell you, my self-care practice every evening is to read something inspirational, spiritual, self-care. I still read, um, psych, you know, psychological self-help books. And I read it for 10 minutes and then I just put it down and I meditate for 10 minutes and then I journal for like five. What came up as I thought of that? And it usually touches on some aspect of like where I feel things are going well, where I think they're like, I could maybe focus on tomorrow, but it helps to just anchor you on you, you know, helps to anchor me on me. And that is the first place of self-care is to be paying attention to myself radically, but also the hardest part, which is um, part of mindfulness, non-judgmentally. I should be doing this. I could have done this. To non-judgmentally just notice, where did I do well today? Where was their struggle? And not to be berating, but to be thoughtful. Maybe I couldn't get there because I was exhausted. Maybe I couldn't get there because, oh, this is an anniversary of a death. Today, I was off all day. And it just now took me to figure out like, oh, today I had a breakup two years ago. Let that information you know, guide you. You know, it could be the anniversary of your grandmother's death or you didn't even notice the date while you're going through your day, but you noticed you were off later on in the day. You kind of, oh, that's why that made sense. That's why I was eating more than I should have. That's why I was eating less than I should have. That's why I didn't sleep well last night. To me, this is like, you know, 
and I'm, I'm, I need to work on cutting people off. I'm so sorry, April. Um, partly <laughs> because we're in different locations, to be fair. But t- to me, if the head of counseling and psychological services at UCLA is doing mindfulness meditation every morning, we all must must we we must right i mean yeah and i'm a black woman i'm watching the news i'm watching the covid i have my family traumas and you know you know the intergenerational trauma secondary to racism i have substance abuse in my family not because they're just you know quote unquote bad people but because how else were you going to cope in the 40s and 50s and 60s and what have you you know like i i have we all have it we all have stuff in our families and we all need to like intentionally focus on how do i do better than before how do i get take the gifts that were given to me by the sacrifices that were made by others and how do i double down on on what i can give in order for me to give to the all of ucla students i gotta be really centered I want to sort of switch gears um, as we sort of um, close out this conversation. We've we've spent a lot of time uh, talking about Black people and and their mental health, of course. I'd like, um, if we could, to consider our white listeners, uh, well-meaning white folks who want to help to end racism, you know, if nothing else, and who are who are wanting to learn um, and to discover ways that they can they can impact people. So I have sort of a two part question. If you had to pick one thing, what's the one thing that you want white folks to understand about the effects that racism has on mental health? You know, both white folks and black folks, what's the one thing you really hope that they can understand about about racism and their mental health and then what's something that they can do to help alleviate the harm caused by racism on black folks mental health so what do you want them to know what do you want them to take away from this and then what are some things that they can do to help alleviate that harm on mental health that's caused by racism yeah i mean these are hard questions and you're like can you tell me one thing i don't know <laughs> yeah come on solve, uh, racism. Okay. solve racism for us dr green uh, <laughs> i guess the one thing you want white folks to understand around racism and mental health i know that black folks were good at um the double consciousness the code switching all of it and i think what's important for white folks to know even if it looks like we're okay um a lot of times we're not okay you just because you're not thinking about it doesn't mean we're not thinking about it Okay, so that's probably the one thing. I think this notion of out of sight, out of mind, or we're all good, white folks like, okay, everything's good. And really, we're not all good um, most of the time. Now, not every individual Black person on every single day, but in general, if you can remind yourself in the ethos, racism exists even if you can't feel it today. That's what I want folks to know. Okay? Um... And then what can they do to alleviate the the harm caused? Mm -hmm. I think um, being willing to approach and not avoid. I think what happens for a lot of white folks who are well-intentioned, well-meaning is the shame that they feel about it gets in the way. 
Mm. Like, you know, they're often berated the white privilege. They can't even see it. And we're yelling at them about it. And it's really overwhelming. And they, they feel gaslit. And a lot of times just the way we feel gaslit, like this thing isn't a thing, you know, and there's lots of, you know, push around it being that this thing is not a thing, but this thing is a thing for sure. Mm. And I really think a lot of times white folks get stuck in a lot of shame. And I ask white folks, can't what's underneath the shame? If you didn't feel shame, what would you feel? And a lot of them feel anger and disappointment. I said, well, great. That's now you're where I feel <laughs> anger and disappointment and traumatized. Now we can work together. So I there need you, you to like push past your own shame that you could have participated in this process because in truth, we're all indoctrinated into it. There's no way around it. We're in it. Uh, so if they can push past the shame and get underneath the shame, then we can work. Well, Dr. Nicole Green, Executive Director of UCLA's Counseling and Psychological Services. I can't say that I've learned so much in one conversation uh, before. So thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you so much for for talking with us. Um, and we hope to have you back on the pod at some point very soon. So thank you very much. Oh, yeah, you're welcome. And now it's time for this episode's action item. April, what do you got? This week, I would encourage our uh, white listeners to, very simple, check in with your black friends. You know, God willing, you have some. I was going to say, like, if you don't have black friends, ask yourself why. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Um, But as you would encourage any good friend to, you know, check in with your, your friends, especially that we're in uh, during this time of quarantine and, and COVID-19, um, I would particularly encourage our white listeners to check in with our black friends. Now, uh, a caveat, don't be annoying. Right. I'm going to say that very plainly. <laughs> your black, <laughs> your Sorry, black... that was really funny. <laughs> caveat. <laughs> Hashtag don't be annoying. Your black friends, as you are well aware, are your equals. We are not children. We are not not capable of handling our own mental health and handling our trauma and our experiences and dealing with our emotions. We do it just as well as anyone else. And have done it since. Yeah, don't let me get started. Let me yeah. just keep you. Go ahead. Tonight, <laughs> Thank you. Sorry, but, sorry. <laughs> so, Thank you. And so I say don't be annoying in that. Uh, don't be patronizing. Check in and ask how they're doing if that's what's appropriate for your, your, your relationship. Um, an example might be when there is devastating news that's dealt, uh, to the American public. Um, uh, we'll go back to the example of the, the decision released on the Breonna Taylor case. That news is devastating for America. Yes, it is more devastating for the black community because it's a reflection on our status in this country. That may be a time to reach out and say something like, hey, real shitty stuff in the news. How are you doing? What can I do for you? How can I support you? Can I get you anything? Do you need, can I send an email for you on your behalf? Something, you know, what, what's, what's appropriate for your, your friendship, for your relationship. Everyone, every relationship is, is very different. But I think, at least for me, the few friends that I have, when they do take the time to reach out and to, 
Listen, okay, I'm on it. <laughs> Sorry, you're like the few, the two friends that I have, few you and Jubilee. Not two. Shut up. <laughs> when when I do hear them, uh, particularly particularly voice concern for me and my well being, uh, in uh, during these sort of momentous times, it's it's encouraging, it's comforting, um, and it helps. So uh, that is our that's the extra time for this week. White folks, if you have black friends um, and they are particularly experiencing something traumatic or bad, reach out, check in, see how they're doing and ask how you can support them. That's it. Am I allowed to add to that? Sure. Why do you have to be like this? Go ahead. No, it's fine. All I'll say is that when something bad does happen, like a Breonna Taylor type thing, I often get flooded with friends who are and the not even for actual friends, but like, more like acquaintances. So this is this advice that you just gave. Only do it if it's your actual friend. OK, like this is not someone who you follow on Facebook and never actually send uh, DMs to or follow on Twitter, or Instagram or whatever people use these days. The children use these days. Um that those aren't your actual friends, right? Like, so only if you have a personal enough relationship with someone where you feel like you can reach out, do that. And also get in the practice of of not having to be prompted by something really, really horrible to check in on your black friends. And to that point, you know, you offer your, your help, your support, your um, time only when you can give it. Some random right, right. Instagrammer reaches out to me like, what can I do for you? Well, nothing because you live in Korea. So that's right. helpful. <laughs> um, so it's it's important that these these things are taken seriously and that your support and your help is offered when it can be given and when it's when it's appropriate for it to be received. This episode of Black Ann was produced by us, April and Jonathan Perkins. It was edited by me, and our music is by Fifth Child. You can find more of his work at fifthchildmusic.com. That's number five, fifthchildmusic.com. You can find Black Ann wherever you listen to podcasts. If you like what you heard today, please feel free to rate, review, and subscribe to the show. Also, be sure to tell your friends. And until next time, be mindful, be vigilant, and and keep keep asking asking questions. questions.